when we read good books well, we're not just learning the stories and having that linguistic experience that I talked about, which is very important and valuable, but we're also cultivating certain habits that are harder to cultivate in this day and age. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Benjamin Quinn. And welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. In today's episode, our own Nathaniel Williams will talk with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor about why Christians should read old books. And after that, we'll have another edition of On My Bookshelf. But first, it's time for our segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines like news, sports, pop culture, business from a Christian perspective. In today's headlines, let's talk about business, especially the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Last week, Silicon Valley Bank suddenly closed its doors, and then over the weekend, Signature Bank also shut down, and the news was a bit of a shock. So to help us understand what's going on, we have with us our own Dr. David Jones. David, as a rule of thumb, if I don't understand something, I don't invest in it, which is one of the reasons why I stayed out of cryptocurrency. And my understanding is, is that Signature Bank especially, uh, this was something that it was deeply involved in. What's going on? Why are we having the bank failures now? Yeah, you know, Ken, it, um, whenever you see in the, in, in the news bank failures, uh, you know, people obviously start to get antsy. You know, I want to commend you uh, on your, um, your lack of investment in crypto. It's always good to not invest in anything that you don't understand. And I think even the experts don't understand crypto. <laughs> well, it seemed to me that that the very point of a currency is, is stability. You know, why would I want to use a medium of exchange that may only be worth half as much or maybe twice as much uh, next week? That defeats the whole purpose of a currency to my thinking. But what do I know? <laughs> so me and you both, I guess, and yeah, I guess kind of ironically, both these banks, uh, their investments in crypto was a small part of the reason why they failed or they became insolvent or the technical term is uh, they were undercapitalized. So let me just kind of explain real briefly uh, what happened with these banks. And I think the more important uh, bank, the larger bank, uh, was Silicon Valley Bank. It was the 16th largest bank in the country, uh, and it's the second largest bank ever to fail. Uh, this bank had somewhere in the neighborhood uh, between uh, $200 and $300 billion in assets uh, and investments. Uh, and so this is a, a really large, large bank. And when you hear that a bank fails, I um, mean, again, that, that causes people to be a bit antsy, uh, a bit anxious and nervous, and people kind of wonder what's going on. And of course, we also see in the news uh, that the bank has been bailed out uh, you know, by the government, uh, and that causes anger in some people because they think, well, uh, you know, some crooks there did something wrong, uh, and uh, we, the taxpayers, are now left uh, with footing the bill. But that's not really exactly 
what happened. Uh, and so in, in particular, what happened with these, these banks is that they actually invested a, a good portion of their money in government bonds, uh, in treasury bonds, which is actually the safest of all possible investments that anybody could, could, could have. And you say, well, if these banks were invested uh, in, in treasury bonds, you know, how is it that they failed? Well, it, it's a bit of a you know complicated discussion, but but here is the kind of the long and, and short of it. When interest rates rise, uh, and I think we all realize that currently interest rates are, are rising. If you have a savings account at, at your bank, you're making more uh, today than you were a year ago. So in, interest rates have uh, have risen. What happens with bonds uh, is that when you have a bond and an interest rate rises the value of that bond actually decreases. And again, this seems counterintuitive, but let me explain it sort of this way. If you were to have a $100 bond that had a 2% interest rate per year, and so then you would make uh, you know $2 a year, not factoring in compounding, you would make $2 a year on your $100 uh, and everything would, would be great. But then if interest rates rise uh, and say now interest rates are 4%, well, I can go out and get a $100 bond and I can make $4 a year rather than the $2 a year that you're making. Well, say then you ran into the need uh, to sell that bond because you needed the money back. Well, who would buy your $100 bond that's only paying 2% interest when they can go straight to the bond sellers and get a 4% bond that pays $4 a year on 100 rather than the $2 a year that, that you're making. So in order to sell your bond, what you're going to have to do uh, is lower the price of it. You're going to have to sell me that $100 bond for $98 or, or maybe $95 or whatever it is in order to make up the difference uh, between your interest rate and the new interest rate, which is much, much higher. And so that's what, what we mean when we say when interest rates rise, the value of bonds decreases. And this is what was the main cause of these banks to become insolvent, is that they bought a lot of government bonds. Interest rates then rose, which meant that the bonds that these banks were holding were then worth less than their face value. And what happened is because bank financials are public uh, in public banks is that everyone could look at the books of these banks and say, well, wait a minute, these banks, they took in, you know, say, you know, $200 billion and they invested a large part of that in bonds. Maybe they bought, you know, $200 billion worth of bonds, but those bonds are now only worth $150 billion. And so th this bank actually has less money available to it than the deposits which it took in. Uh, and this is called being undercapitalized. So this is very different from what happened in the banking crisis of 2008 through 2010. In that scenario, they really did have worthless loans in that they gave mortgages to people who should have never had mortgages in the first place. And, yes, yes. and, and, and so it's, there's a big difference between, between a bank having assets that are worth less than they used to be and having assets that are worthless. And so you're saying that this is a very different scenario. Completely different. Whereas back in 2007, 2008, there were actually people who 
were acting immorally. Uh, they were they were giving out uh, junk loans that they knew were not going to be paid back. They actually acted, uh, I would say, criminally, right? Whereas the current situation with these banks, Silicon Valley Bank and, and the others, it's just a matter of investing in bonds when interest rates went up. What happened is when people realized that these banks were undercapitalized, they started to take their money out. Yeah. Now that was the next thing I was going to ask you about. This seems to be the classic example of the self-fulfilling prophecy. We've all seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. And you have the scene where George Bailey and his bride are getting ready to go on their honeymoon and the savings loan or building the loan that, that he runs, there's a bank run going on and everybody's in a panic. Uh, my understanding is, is that something similar happened like that with the signature bank that they were losing like a billion dollars an hour. It was just incredible the amount of money that was being withdrawn every hour, which then guaranteed that the bank would fail. Exactly. And so what happened is people um, um, who had deposits at Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank, they realized that the bank had access to less cash than the deposits that they held. And so people thought to themselves, which, yeah, I don't want to be the one that can't get my money back. And so word spread by social media. And there was a, a bank run where people started withdrawing their money not wanting to be the one that couldn't withdraw their money. Whereas ironically, if everyone would have just left their money in these banks, they would have been fine because when bonds mature, they actually pay back their face value. In a sense, this all could have been avoided, but because of sort of a herd mentality and a panic that was fostered by social media, it caused both of these banks to fail. And that therefore caused the federal government to step in and what's called the backstop, the guarantee that all of the deposits at the bank, that they would be repaid. And you know, something that people may have actually missed in the, uh, the news stories is that the government didn't just backstop the deposits at these two banks that failed, but they actually backstopped all the deposits at all the banks in the country. And so essentially what the government was trying to do is they're trying to prevent a bank run at all of the banks across the country, because it's not just these two banks that invested in bonds uh, in a, an environment when interest rates are going up. And so they're trying to restore the confidence uh, in uh, the banking industry by guaranteeing deposits. Well, Dr. Jones, thank you so much for explaining things. Uh, as always, so very clearly, we appreciate you being on the program. Thanks for having me again, Ken. Why should you read books? Yes, even the old ones. We're delighted to have with us today Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor to help us discuss this. Dr. Pryor serves as Research Professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And she has a lot of books, including uh, Booked, Literature in the Soul of Me, and On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. She's also the co-editor of Cultural Engagement, A Crash Course in Contemporary Issues, and she's written articles for Christianity Today, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, Relevant, The Gospel Coalition, Our Own Christ and Culture blog, and many, many others. Dr. Pryor, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right, tell us a little bit about your story, in particular of how you came to love books. Well, I came to love books because I'm old enough where there wasn't a whole lot else to do when I was growing up, at least um, 
in my family. My mother read to me and to my brothers when we were little from the very start. And I guess that doesn't guarantee a kid will grow up loving books because I think I'm the only one who did. But for whatever reason, it just took. She read to me. My father read to me. I can distinctly remember learning to read by myself a Dr. Seuss book with my finger reading out loud. I set up a library in my basement and made my friends check out books whether they wanted to or not. Um, And so I was just the proverbial girl with her nose in the book all the time. In, in the beginning, we talked about reading old books. Why should we read old books? Well, you know, a lot of people read books for the story and for entertainment. And that is wonderful. I mean, that's a great reason to read a book. But there is a literary art to literature. I mean, that's really what literature is. It's art that uses words. And so um, language is essential to a good story. So instead of thinking just about like what happens, how exciting the story is, how the plot ends, which guy gets which girl and all those things, those are those are fun and interesting. Um, the language of a book is really what makes a difference. It's not just what the story is, but how the story is told. Mm. And so when we read old books or older books, I mean, that's a relative term. You don't have to go back very far, actually. And we're talking just about English language books, but you don't have to go back very far. And the language seems kind of strange. Yeah, it's like yeah. not our language. Even even some 20th century books use language that's already outdated. Mm-hmm. So if you go back to the 18th or 19th century, you're reading English, but it's not like our English. Well, reading books that use older language expands our own language. It expands our way of thinking when we are immersed in the language, same language, but different time that's used by other writers to portray their characters and events. And so um, that's actually, I think, why I'm not a big fan of historical fiction. I, Mm. I read some, but it always seems artificial to me because it's someone living today trying to describe events of the past. You either faking their language or using our language or a mixture. But if we just read something like by Jane Austen that was written in the late uh, 18th or early 19th century, we're reading her language as it was and it's natural. And so we're immersed in that world. And so for me, it's not just about the story, it's about the language. So in other words, like reading old books kind of expands our linguistic palette in a sense, right? You answered the question so much more (laughs) succinctly than I did. Yes, exactly. And by extension, I guess we could say it also expands our mind and how we think about things because exactly. we connect language to, to, to ideas and whatnot. Is there also a sense in which reading old books, you know, if we're reading them today, they have stood the test of time. Lots of books get published every single day and not all of them will be read 100 years from now. Right. Is there a sense to, well, that's the case too? Right. So those books that do stand the test of time have so many qualities that have allowed them to do that. And so... Um, there are other things besides the language and besides the stories, the ideas, the timelessness. Those books that are considered classics today are classics because they speak into timeless human concerns and questions and express the human condition that's unchanging. And then other, you know, the books that don't, don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, we work at a seminary. Mm-hmm. I'm also a pastor. And in this world, we read a lot of nonfiction for good reason. Mm-hmm. We read a lot of nonfiction that's important and a good thing. Make the case for us. Why should we read fiction too? Or should we? 
We absolutely should. <laughs> and to be clear, I'm a professor. I'm a researcher. I write books. I read a lot of nonfiction. Right, right. Um, and so, uh, and, 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 you know, some heavy and deep nonfiction. So fiction, which is my first love, good fiction. You know, I'm happy to listen to a Stephen King novel on Audible when I'm out running. It makes me run faster. <laughs> um, and he's actually a very good writer. Right, so right. he's probably not the best example because he is a good writer. Um, but yeah, there are, there are books that we might read once on an airplane and throw away or give to the goodwill when we're done because we were just passing the time with them. But when I'm talking about fiction, the kind of fiction that I love and advocate for, I'm talking about the classics. I'm talking about, or even new works that use language, again, as an art form. And so it's not, again, it's not just the story that's told that's entertaining or interesting. It's also the way the language that's used alters our perception of the world around mm. us. Because even in prose that is well written and uses language artfully, it does the same thing that poetry does. It uses words in a way that make comparisons and draw connections to our own experience and in the world around us so that we can actually see the world in a different way, not just because of some event that happened to a character, but because of the way a language, which we also use, recreated the experience and that stays in us because we are you know made in the image of god we are creatures of language words speak to us they're embedded in our in our souls and our minds and our hearts in ways that other creatures don't have that that's part of what it means to be made in his image is to be like linguistic creatures mm, yeah yeah now one of my favorite of your books is on reading well and the subtitle is finding the good life through good books. Let me just ask you, I know you can't summarize the entire book here for us, but how do we find the good life through good books? Well, I spend a lot of time in the introduction um, in that book. Uh, all the chapters, the subsequent chapters focus on a particular work and it, and the virtue we can see in it. But in the introduction, I talk about how when we read good books well, we're not just learning the stories and having that linguistic experience that I talked about, which is very important and valuable, but we're also cultivating certain habits that are harder to cultivate in this day and age. Mm. The habit of attentiveness, the habit of patience, the habit of just immersing ourselves in, you know, something that's not a screen or scrolling past us or has pop-up ads. I mean, I, I'm a <laughs> lifelong reader and that's a pretty long time. And even I have experienced what's been done, being done to our brains through digital media. Now it's not all, you know, digital media has offered many, many gifts, don't get me wrong, but it also takes away things. And so reading brings back some of that attentiveness, some of that um, patience, some of that um, diligence that's required for us to just sit still and read a book for a while. Going back to that conversation about old books, I've noticed that a lot of newer books that I read have very short chapters. And it's almost like the books are adapting to this cultural moment where our attention spans are so small mm -hmm. and they want to keep you turning the pages. It's almost like they don't trust you enough right. <laughs> to have longer chapters. Is that another reason why, I mean, clearly books with short chapters are fine, but but in a sense, they're, they're a product of our time. Right. Is there another reason to read old books because they force us to do the work of reading even more uh, patiently as well. Absolutely. I mean, especially books from the 18th and 19th century, which tend to be very, very long. Yeah. Um, the chapters are long. <laughs> the books are long. The story takes a long time. Just to stay 
engaged with a work like that um, requires something that very little in our world today requires of us. And I, I like to encourage people because, again, I suffer from the same things you do, the shortened attention span and many things to do and got to check Twitter. But if, if you pick up a good classic, no matter how thick it is, but it, even if it's thin, it will it will be dense. And, and one that interests you, because I don't believe in torture, self-torture, you know, <laughs> really, if it, just find something that interests you. If it takes you a year to read it, you know, 10 minutes every night, you've read that book yeah, in a year. Yeah. And so I think I think people should think about it that way. Like even no matter how long it takes you, if you just stick at it and then you've, you are done, you have read this great classic work. Yeah. And yeah. it'll be easier next time. Speaking of the classics, Lifeway has released new editions of classic books like Frankenstein, Test the Dubervilles, Scarlet Letter, among others. And and these new editions have a guide to reading and reflection woven in. And you wrote those, uh, yes. that guide to reading and reflection. So h- how did this series come about? And, and what are your goals for having these new editions of these books? Mm-hmm. Thanks for asking. I just I'm so excited about this project. Um, it was actually the idea of BNH. They came to me, you know, because I've been teaching English literature in a Christian context for a long time. And um, so they wanted me to, you know, and these are works that are in the public domain. So if you go on Amazon, you're going to find 100 copies of every single one of these. And most of them are going to be cheap and terrible and awful and printed in very poor quality. Right. So beware. <laughs> um, don't just buy the first one that pops up. But um, there, are, there are good editions as well. But what I'm saying is anyone can print them off with a printer at home and sell them. Um, but what B&H did is to create um, beautiful um, cloth bound um larger print editions uh, some of the longer ones are, are kind of heavy uh, but on quality paper with a ribbon so these are quality editions of these classic books and I wrote introductions for each one that draw on uh, my experience teaching these in the classroom hmm. so I give kind of the background and what's going on and what to look for and I don't include any spoilers because there's no greater joy than reading a great yeah. novel for the first time and finding out who dies, who gets married, and um, all those things. <laughs> yeah. Can we ask what other, what other books are on the horizon in that project? Well, the, there are six volumes in the series. Um, Frankenstein, Tess of the Durbervilles, Jane Eyre, Sense and Sensibility, Heart of Darkness, and... Scarlet Letter. The Scarlet Letter. Got it in my notes. Yeah, I, I'm you, not just you. omniscient. Yeah. Uh, and so th- that, that series is done for now, unless I revisit it, but it's a six-volume series. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, some of our listeners may not be avid readers, but listening to this, maybe they want to start. They want to start reading more and start reading more of those classics. Uh, What would you say to them? How can they get started in this journey of reading? Well, I mean, the obvious answer to that is to pick up one of my classics because (laughs) I have written those introductions exactly for that person. Mm. Now, people who've read and loved those works before also say that they... Um, they learn because from the introductions and also I put notes in there. So it really, I really designed the books to be like an, a classroom in that book, a course in that book. So I would say start with one of those six of my editions. But even beyond that, um, you know, as I said before, you know, there are so many classics. I'll never read them all. You'll never read them all. Pick up one that just you've always heard about, you always wanted to read, um, and that you think will will interest you. It's on a topic that interests you, or it's a length that interests you, or a writer that interests you. There are so many good books, and we'll never read them all. And so um, just 
just ask around there. Li- I don't like to do lists because I'll get criticized <laughs> by someone for something I did. But, you know, Modern Library has a great list of the 100 best novels. You can start there, look there and find one that grabs your attention. Um, yeah. This season, we're focusing on spiritual formation. How can reading old books affect us uh, in our own spiritual formation as we're walking with Jesus? I, I think I would just, again, talk about the language and the fact that, you know, that Jesus is the word. Um, we are given the word of the Bible to read. The Bible is beautiful. It's rich. It's layered. It's textured in its language. It's simple on some levels to understand, but we can always go more deeply into it. And literature, because because it is, you know, using words as art form does the same thing. And so I think, again, that um, linguistic capability helps us and the patience. So there's the, re- the act of reading, but also a lot of cognitive um, research has shown that when we read literary fiction specifically, and again, that's the fiction that uses art as language, not just entertainment or use language as an art form, it increases our empathy. Mm. So it teaches us to love our neighbor better because we can kind of we know who our neighbor is we understand what their needs are we understand you know that what they're going through in a better way because you know we can only experience a very limited amount of things but books allow us to see the world through so many other people's eyes read old books to love your neighbor there we go we could put it yes (laughs) Uh, before you go uh, i do want to ask a couple rapid fire questions and i just want you to to answer the first thing that comes to mind so uh, usually dr quinn this is his thing uh but uh but i'm gonna try it today so here we go favorite book jane eyre by charlotte bronte okay most overrated book for you this is not for everybody for you the book you read you're like ah that wasn't all it's cracked up to be the hobbit okay all right the tolkien i didn't finish it though (laughs) I couldn't. <laughs> what's, what's a book that you go back to time and time again? Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. What is the uh, best book you're reading right now? Right now, I read one work of fiction at a time. I'm reading The Rabbit Hutch, which is a contemporary novel prize winner about an apartment complex in the city somewhere. I just started it. It's actually really good. <laughs> okay. Uh, last one. What is one classic book that you've always wanted to read? You just haven't got to it yet. Oh my goodness. There are so many. Let me, okay. So let me pick one. Moby Dick. Moby Dick. All right. Yeah. I was supposed to read it in college, but I didn't. <laughs> that, now, now we're going to put this on uh, Dr. Pryor's uh, reading goals for this year. She's going to read Moby Dick some point. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, thank I you. bought it. You got it. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Pryor, and sharing with us about books and old books and uh, all of that. How can people follow your work and uh, and buy these books that we've talked about? Well, they, I have a, a very basic website with some links to those works, karenswallowpryor.com. If you want to see the livelier version of me, you can follow me at Twitter, K-S-P-R-I-O-R. And I do have an Instagram account, Karen Swallow Pryor. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. Today we have our very own Dr. Ken Keithley. Dr. Keithley, what is on your bookshelf right now? So we have had the theme on this episode of old books. Let me talk about two of the most influential books of the 20th century, 1984 and Brave New World. 
1984 was written by George Orwell, and he warned about what it would be like to be in a type of totalitarianism in which the government controlled everything. If you've ever read 1984, then you know what I'm talking about. Think of North Korea, a, a state in which everything is controlled by the government, and mostly what they control is the way people think through the control of the media, the control of the education. It is uber oppressive, and it's very depressing to read a book like 1984. Another book that has not received quite as much attention is the book by Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. Now, Huxley was Thomas Huxley's grandson, who was one of the original defenders of Darwin's theory of evolution. Aldous Huxley, in his book, Brave New World, he takes a different approach than George Orwell. Instead of the government controlling you by taking everything away from you, what if you were controlled by them giving you everything you want? It's a totalitarian structure that controls everything, but the way they kept everyone happy is that no need was unmet, no want was unsatisfied. And so they lived in this culture of complete sexual promiscuity, a culture in which there are no financial burdens, in which everything in your life, no matter what you want, it is met. And so it is warning not against totalitarian communism. It's warning against totalitarian capitalism. And he wrote the book in the 1930s. But what he describes is very much in keeping with the world in which we live today, in which we have a social media in which everything you might want is available on your screen. Whatever desire, whatever inclination, it's right there. Uh, and he talks about how this ends up being just as oppressive and just as controlling as a communist country that controls all of your aspects of your life. So in the end, Brave New World presents us, I think, an even scarier scenario than 1984 because you're, you're just as controlled, you're just as dominated, it's just as totalitarian as if you were in some country like North Korea, but in this setting, nobody cares. Everything they want, they have it, so it doesn't bother them that they are completely in bondage. A scary scenario indeed. I mean, it's, you know, we might think of the horrors of a North Korea and the delights of getting everything that we want until we realize that Paul is right, that we're actually slaves to our own desires. And when you get everything that you want, it's a little bit of a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, but in a different ending. Um, and you, when you get everything you want or you demand that your wants and you get what you want, you figure out that you're really not in control after all. There's an enslavement in both directions. Fascinating stuff and good, uh, good old book reminders. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Christ and Culture. If you enjoyed it, please give us a five-star rating and review this at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Share it with a friend. This is very helpful for us. Thank you for listening. <laughs>